and welcome to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Jorgensen. I'm Finn Arne Jorgensen. And we're happy to welcome you back. We had a couple weeks off um, for the Easter holiday here in Norway, 2022. Um, and so we're excited to come back to books and to be joined today by Victor Xiao, who's Assistant Professor of the History of Science at Harvard University. And he's going to be presenting his book, we have a very nice copy of right here, uh, Carbon Technocracy, Energy Regimes in Modern East Asia, which came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2022. So Victor, we'll just give it over to you. That sounds great. Uh, as I prepare my screen share, I start uh, sharing uh, my screen. I just wanted to thank you so much for having me uh, here in this series and for all the work that you do uh, with the environmental humanities. I enjoyed your uh, the Greenhouse series, and so it's such a delight to now be a part of it. And thank you uh, so much to everyone who's also here today uh, to hear about the book. I hope you've got questions because uh, I'll love to, to chat with you uh, about them. But so I'm going to jump uh, into it. Here's the, the book, uh, the cover of the book itself, and the book uh, Carbon Technocracy. Uh, explores the origins and challenges of our unfolding climate crisis, uh, and it does so by focusing on how modern states became embroiled in projects of intensive energy extraction. Uh, and I conduct this inquiry through the history of what was once the largest coal mine in East Asia, the Fushun Colliery, uh, featured uh, here on the cover of the book. By following the experiences of Chinese and Japanese bureaucrats and planners, geologists and mining engineers, and labor contractors and miners, I trace uh, the deep links between what I see as the raw materiality of the coal face uh, and the corridors of power, the soft centers of calculation in Tokyo, Nanjing, Beijing, and beyond. So put another way, this is a book about how energy relates to power in the industrial modern age. So that's super abstract, and I'll go to Fushun itself to um, point out some ways in which these dynamics play out. Uh, here's a view of Fushun's most iconic site, uh, sort of zoomed out from what you see on the, on the cover of the book. Uh, it's massive open pit mine, and this comes from a postcard. I actually have the postcard over here uh, from around the early 1930s, you know, when it was very popular, this industrial modern aesthetic was very popular, that you want to send uh, a picture of a mine back home to your friends and loved ones. Uh, but so it dates around that time. Uh, but the stuff that was um, excavated to create this mine at, at that moment uh, exceeded that that was stretched to, to make the Panama Canal by about threefold. So just to give you a sense of the scale. This is really kind of staggering engineering feat. Um, I wanted to point your attention to the labels on the mine that you see it in English and Japanese. In English, it says, you know, the grand site, the open working Fushun Colliery, exactly the reason why you want to sort of send it as a postcard. Uh, but for those of you who read uh, Chinese or Japanese, you notice that there's a phrase that's missing in the English translation that says uh, in Japanese, Mujin no Hoko, or limitless treasure house, and I argue that this sense of limitless wealth uh, in that untranslated phrase sums up a sentiment that many Japanese would have in the first half of the 20th century toward the coal mine at this site. And it was a sentiment that was shared by subsequent Chinese regimes as well. As well. Uh, it would inform the scale of operations that the colonial corporation, the Japanese colonial corporation that ran this mine, brought to bear on uh, its subsurface themes. 
And I wanted to gesture to this in particular because I think this is one of the central tensions in thinking about energy in the modern era in terms of both its, its potential limitlessness, as well as another theme that I trace throughout the book, which is one of scarcity. So how it's held in productive tension. Now, if the Anthropocene is defined by how we as human beings have become geological agents, uh, there are few visual evidences of that fact that are striking as that of Ushun's open pit. Uh, here we witness how industrial technologies were used to turn this landscape of extensive resource potential into a site of intensive resource production on such a scale that seems to replicate the hand of nature itself. Um, before I turn to some of the main interventions that I have sought to make through this book, I want to quickly situate us geographically and historically. So um, this, uh, but before this, this is a, just a site of, um, that's closer to the present uh, of, of the working. And here we are. Um, on the left uh, is, the, is, is the map of coal mines and railway lines. It's a map of coal, way, uh, coal mines and railway lines in East Asia, circa 1935, where Fushun it sits in southern Manchuria, a region about the size of France and Germany combined. Now, Fushun's coal mines were opened by Chinese merchants uh, around the turn of the 20th century. These Chinese mines drew a measure of Russian investment, and it was on the basis of that Russian capital that Japan would lay claim to them after its victory in the Russo-Japanese War. From 1907 onwards, these mines were managed by the powerful colonial corporation, the South Manchuria Railway Company, which uh, has been compared to and in fact modeled itself upon the British East India Company. Now, under this uh, company's management, uh, Fushun came to boast the largest coal mining operations in East Asia. It also served as a laboratory of empire where technologies not in place in the home islands were tried and tested, developed and deployed. Uh, and these include hydraulic stowing. Uh, and I have a picture of, uh, this is right in the center over there uh, that, that gestures to some of that, of hydraulic stowing for further excavation of subsurface seams, uh, mass fingerprinting for labor control, and the distillation of liquid petroleum from the thick seam of oil shale that overlay this coal. So after Japan's empire fell in 1945, the Fushun colliery was seized first by the Soviets, then the Chinese nationalists, and finally the Chinese communists. And it subsequently placed an important part in fueling the new socialist state's industrialization drive in the 1950s. So three main interventions that the book tries to make uh, in relation to uh, energy and environmental history, modern East Asian history, and the history of technology and labor. So I'll start with the first uh, in relation to environmental history. And this is in regard to the state and the fossil fuel turn. So uh, energy historians have been um, one of the main questions that we asked is, you know, how do we explain the transition to coal and other fossil fuels and the subsequent intensification of their use? And um, there's a, a big scholarship uh, on this front uh, that gestures to large factors such as uh, the ecological limits of economic growth and the forces of capitalism to much smaller factors that have become big in the aggregate, such as the machinations of industrialists and the choices of consumers. And what tends to be left out in these accounts, I uh, contend, is, um, is, is the state, uh, which I find both surprising and yet at the same time not, uh, in that the modern era is one in which the state has been overwhelmingly influential and invasive, uh, yet concurrently insidious and at times even invisible. 
So the images I have for you here uh, to represent this uh, of Mao visiting Fushun in 1958 during the disastrous national production campaign, which was the Great Leap Forward, and another, and another poster to the right uh, of the preceding first five-year plan that reads, coal is a grain of industry, a sinification, if you will, of Lenin's maxim, coal is the bread of industry. And both are visual representations of the socialist state's commitment to the intensive extraction that made possible its pursuit of fossil fuel development. Now, this is detailed in the last chapter of the book, but what I show in the account leading up to it is that the pattern of prodigious production was true of the Chinese nationalists and imperial Japanese regimes that came before. This is uh, an account through uh, that is both uh, connective uh, through these various regimes that held on to this site, as well as comparative. Now, I argue that energy resources, uh, I point out that energy resources undergirded a range of status preoccupations from economic production to the waging of war, uh, and states came to see ensuring a steady and growing supply of fossil fuels as essential to their variegated objectives and ultimately to their survival and extension of power. And in order to obtain sufficient stocks of coal, they turned to some of the latest developments in science and technology, whether in the form of geological surveys to locate subterranean deposits or mining engineering to wrest those riches from the earth. Uh, but in their eagerness to excavate and exploit fossil fuels, many states became committed to efforts at energy extraction that were as extravagant as they were extensive. And I've termed this system carbon technocracy because it rested on an unwavering, oftentimes uncritical belief in the superiority of science and technology in the practice of statecraft and relied upon methods deemed scientific and technological in the mastery of fossil fuels so central to the project of the modern state. Second, uh, this is uh, in regard to um, East Asian history is, you know, imperial industrialization and the legacies of empire. And the first, and the pair of images I have to demonstrate this, gesture to this, is uh, of the massive winding tower at the Longfeng Shaft Mine, once the tallest in the world. Um, and uh, the image on the left is from the Mantetsu era, from the Manchurian, uh, Manchukuo era, with the Japanese flag and the South Manchuria Railway Company's flag um, hanging, uh, sort of flying from from the top and then the communist uh, period to the right of the red star. And something I do in this book then is to highlight Japanese continuities that contributed to Chinese um, post-1949 industrialization, not in, only in terms of you know, buildings left behind, but also Japanese engineers who remained after the war and revolution and assisted in the rehabilitation of this devastated industry and also sort of imparted knowledge and expertise to their Chinese counterparts. Now, that part of the Japanese legacy in Manchuria was industrialization and economic development might seem like an inconvenient truth for those of us who are opposed to the idea of imperialism, uh, which I hope you know, everyone is. Uh, but this is by no means a reason to cherish the memory of Japan's empire. And, I, and this is where I think taking the environmental perspective sort of sheds light on, on this. Um, you know, aside from the fact that Manchuria's economic infrastructure was established on the backs of countless Chinese workers, it also needs to be stressed that Japan's architects of the region's industrial edifices almost certainly had not raised them for the benefit of their colonized subjects. Furthermore, this issue of Japanese contributions to the post-colonial Manchurian economy may be easier to accept if we recognize that the large-scale coal-fired industrial expansion did not yield positive outcomes for all or even many sectors of the local population to say nothing of the environment. We can then acknowledge Japan's quote-unquote positive economic impact on Manchuria without celebrating it. You know, this is uh, a portion of the fraught inheritance uh, that Japan, Imperial Japan bequeathed to its communist successor 
and would be so visible here in Fushun in the technological infrastructure and technical expertise that constituted carbon technocracy. Finally, the third and last main intervention I want to highlight today relates to technology and labor. Now, one of the reasons why Japanese technocrats pursued open pit mining was not only to extract larger quantities of Fushun's carbon resources, but also to reduce their reliance on the Chinese labor uh, that worked these mines, which they deemed unreliable at best. To excavate the, uh, the pit, the mine manager at the time brought in uh, geologists and engineers from the Mesabi Iron Range uh, in the US. And uh, in his proposal for this excavation, one of the American engineers would claim that his method would ensure increased output that could be, quote, maintained in the face of possible labor shortages and strikes. Uh, but as you can see from the graphs over here, uh, for all its efforts at mobilizing the machine, the colliery never did seem to be able to truly diminish its dependence on labor. As its targeted production rose from year to year, this industrial apparatus consistently required tens of thousands of workers to keep the cogs turning. Um, but this also meant subjecting more and more miners to the dangers of an environment that was engineered for, an, for intensive extraction. Fushun's biggest coal mining uh, disaster takes place uh, at the Oyama mine, circled on this little uh, drawn-out map in 1917. And this was an explosion that destroyed the ventilation fan room above and caused a blackout in a nearby town. Um, but also in this episode, we kind of see how you know an engineered uh, environment not only allows for extraction, but uh, in, in without these mechanisms in place, uh, creates um, turns these sites back into sites of danger. Because the mechanism for regulating airflow was no longer there, the operators could not shut off the circulation of air, which was sucked back to the mine to feed the fire. Uh, decades later, one survivor would contend that, quote, for the sake of coal and without regard for the lives of Chinese miners, the, uh, this is the derogatory term they use, the small Japanese devils, forced the people at the top of the pit to close off the mouths with mud. And because of that, the workers below had no way to escape. In total, 917 perished. 17 Japanese, 900 Chinese. Many of these disasters and accidents, as I document in the book, were a result of mining too much or too quickly or without proper maintenance of equipment or observation of safety, particularly with escalating demands into and through the war. And this persists into the socialist period. Uh, and the last sort of document I'll show uh, for this is, you know, uh, uh, something that was circulated uh, in 1954. It was an internally circulated document decrying Fushun's safety record. You know, it says that production had exceeded targets, but accidents were plenty. And as a result, some workers started to complain that coal, uh, that quote, the coal is paid for in human lives. Um, but this continues thereafter with losses increasingly computed in terms such as lost work hours, foregone production and capital expenditure. You know, the socialist state had been very critical of the Japanese and nationalist regimes that preceded it, but their disregard for workers as they exploited Fushun's coal, uh, as they exploited Fushun's coal resources. But here, the similarity was uh, all too striking in coal mining as in other areas, they wound up perpetuating some of the very worst of former accesses, such as the wasteful extraction of resources, the ruination of landscape, and the exploitation of workers whose labor sustained this enduring system of carbon technocracy. So to conclude, um, you know, Fushun is past its days of industrial glory, and we can talk a little bit about this in the in the in the in the conversation after. But uh, when I first visited Fushun in 2011, they were building this museum, what you see over there, which they completed later that year, and it was meant to commemorate the industry that built the city and fueled the nation. But even then, it seemed to me like a little bit of a death knell. 
uh, for, for this industry there. Uh, the deindustrialization that the region had become infamous for was uh, evident all around. And four years later, we see this New York Times article comes out of sort of captured that dynamic very lyrically and beautifully, uh, sort of tragically, uh, coal which built a Chinese city now threatens to bury it um, with reference to the subsidence, the great amount of subsidence that was taking place. Um, and uh, four years after that, the big open pit mine shuts down. So, you know, to some extent, my approach in this book is almost too obvious. Uh, I said I'm telling a history of energy and I look at a coal mine. Uh, but mines like Fushun, I argue, uh, did not only fuel the appetites and ambitions of states. They also serve as microcosms of the systems they, uh, they sustained. Uh, and that, you know, in Fushun's history, we see, um, you know, these hubristic attempts to tame and transform nature through technology. The, mispla the misplaced valorization of machines over human beings and productivist pursuits that strained both the environment uh, from which coal was extracted and the many workers on whom that extractive process so deeply depended. And so to finally just conclude, I thought I'd read the last paragraph of the book that I think may help set up our conversation uh, from hereafter. And this references, again, the museum that I just showed you the picture of. When you step into the Fushun Coal Mining Museum, chances are the first thing you will see in the cavernous entrance hall is a large sculpture of coal miners against a backdrop of a tunnel through a coal seam. The style is decidedly socialist realist. The miners, hard hats on head, stand tall, two with arms raised in triumph. Behind them, fellow miners toil in the excavated tunnel, one pair using an electric pick on a coal face several others lugging coal and debris up an incline. In front of the sculpture in large characters reads, this is the treasure of the Chinese people and also the glorious symbol of human labor. It is the considerable labor, blood, sweat, and lives that have been paid. This phrase comes from Xiao Chun's Coal Mine in May, uh, a novel which I used to frame the, the last chapter of the book. And it's part of the reader's introduction to that fictional coal mining town of Wujin, it applies certainly to Fushun, on which Wujin was based, but also more broadly to similar sites of extraction beyond. For although a jaded onlooker may dismiss the entire display as yet another piece of propaganda, it serves, I think, as a useful reminder of the considerable amounts of human energy that have gone into supporting and sustaining the world that Carbon made. The now seminal essay on writing history amid the reality of climate change, Deepesh Chakrabarti notes, how intensive energy consumption has been baked into ideas of pro progress over the past two and a half centuries. The mansion of modern freedoms, he remarks, stands on an ever-expanding base of fossil fuel use, so much cited um, quote. Uh, but this book has attempted to show that there was and still is a deep seam of unfreedom of human costs exacted by industrial modern states operating under the logics of carbon technocracy that runs beneath the building of this mansion and the laying of its fossil fuel base. So thank you so much. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you, Victor. Uh, really fascinating. And I mean, the pictures also just remind me of our years in Northern Sweden, where we would drive through these mining landscapes too. You would see, I mean, you wouldn't really see the pits, but you would certainly see the mountains of uh, the spills the from the from the road. Mm -hmm. So the well, and yeah. I've been inside to the pits too. Yes. So yeah, you just don't see really them from the road. Yeah.
So, so it's it's like fascinating material, and I mean, minds are really interesting the kind of stories they can tell also but i wanted to start by asking you about uh, a phrase from the title of the book uh, the energy regimes because that's a concept that i mean shows up every now and then in literature uh, you didn't talk about it here in your introduction so how how do you use it in your book uh, what kind of regimes are we talking about yeah no thank you for that question so i mean i guess the typical way to sort of frame an energy regime would be sort of how sort of an, a system of a social economic system uh, that's determined in part by sort of the dominant uh, sort of energy form and use. And I mean, this this dates back to uh, the references people make to you know, the age of coal versus the transitions. And and regimes exist in part with with ideas of transitions. And I'm sort of using a much more capacious understanding of what a regime is here, uh, drawing in part from um, uh, Gabrielle Heck's uh, understanding of the technopolitical regime that is also sort of this political system. And so I, I see this as you know, this assemblage of, of uh, sort of knowledge systems with political forces plus uh, labor management. Uh, plus the circulation of, uh, sort of the economic system through which these resources are circulated. Uh, and I and, and also importantly, the sort of ideologies and logics that uh, underlie them, including the one I sort of gestured to in, the, in my opening remarks about the uh, about um, sort of that tension between inexhaustibility and, and, and the um, fear of scarcity. Uh, so these are, I, I see uh, Sort of defining um, features of of this larger uh, kind of assemblage that I call the energy regime. Uh, I should note that uh, actually John McNeil has 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 uh, uh, has a similarly capacious uh, definition of this, but I think I, I may have layered on the ideology aspect uh, a little bit more uh, in 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 my take on it. Yeah, as one should, I think it certainly belongs there. Uh, another concept that you've used a couple of times in, uh, in your talk now is the, this idea of transition, so energy transitions, uh, mm -hmm. which for us is really interesting since we're at a university that's now all about the green transition. We're an oil, mm -hmm. old oil university, but now we're going to become green, right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so also as a historian, um, I think this, this idea of looking at past transitions to understand you know, what goes on is really important uh, that we as historians can actually contribute something. So what would you say then, I mean, if you're going to generalize a bit, what are characteristics of such energy transitions? Uh, and is there something to learn, I guess, particularly from, from this case then, that we can bring with us into understanding, you know, the transitions in a way, away from fossil fuels, because you talk about transitions mm -hmm. into fossil fuel. Yeah, no, thank you for, for this question. I, I mean, I, I won't be the first one to say it and won't be the last one either, but I think gesturing to, you know, how um, there are seldom clean breaks uh, and it's, you know, it, it's in part the transition from coal to oil uh, saw the intensification of coal use uh, as well into even as, you know, um, oil takes, begins to take up a larger uh, portion of the portfolio Coal use also escalates, uh, but I and also and, and I think um, 
sort of another kind of thing that I try to underscore here then is the role of human labor as as uh, as important uh, within the energy transition itself also uh, in parts sort of pushing back against the ideologies of the moment which saw first you know steam powered and then sort of, sort of you know elect, uh, sort of, uh, sort of devices that were then powered by electricity um, that were uh, that were imagined as displacing human labor uh, and I think uh, you know the modern era is one in which we sort of find ways to further degrade human labor even if it's sort of displaced from one industry to another and so that's another sort of thing to sort of flag out here but I, something that's kind of specific to the story that I tell that I think it's it may be interesting to think with is is um, how uh, and this comes up in, in in my discussion of shale oil in particular, and then subsequently with synthetic petroleum through uh, the hydrogenation of coal, which is the, you know, you have these certain technologies such as you know the ICE um, and that were that were deemed uh, to sort of, I mean were, were desirable and and that was uh, sort of driving a desire for for oil, and in the in the absence of oil, the ways that these you know earlier energy sources were imagined as as being able to sort of undergo the alchemy of change to sort of become liquid uh fuel to fuel um these devices so i think thinking of it in terms of you know that i don't see technological determinism <laughs> uh, uh, but you know the, the 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 you know the technological parameters in which people imagine um so of the energy, uh, so of subsequent sources as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that kind of um, trajectories, right, of, of technologies, mm -hmm. they, they set the framework, as you're saying, for what people can envision an energy source should look like. And so therefore, they go about to make that energy source. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was wondering about another word you use in the title, so technocracy. Mm -hmm. And the type of technocracy that is present in both the Japanese uh, colonizers and then the Manchurians that, that take over afterwards. Um, is there something, you know, because technocracy being just, you know, governmental forms in which, which rely on scientific or technological expertise, right? Mm -hmm. Which actually, I guess, if you think in a long sense, China's is has you know, thousands of years of history of doing precisely that, right? With the bureaucratic yeah. state um, that they had. But so is there something specific about your case, about their type of technocracies, um, you know, that really create this carbon system, this energy regime that's different than somewhere else or that's somehow special that you'd like to bring up? Yeah, no, thank you for that question. I think it, Part, part of what I want to do with this book, although it's sort of situated in East Asia, is to sort of gesture to kind of these larger global themes that this is something that we see in, in other systems as well. But in terms of something that's unique, maybe I'll, I'll pinpoint the socialist period because this is where, you know, a big component of technocracy would be the expertise. Expertise was purportedly reimagined with, uh, especially with the move toward uh, kind of bottom-up versus top-down expertise and learning from the workers, learning from ordinary people, 
uh, and it's sort of within the sort of larger idiom of we might imagine. And, and this is something that you know historians of science, of the social view, are very interested in this kind of science for the people um, move. And my kind of critique here is, while well, I mean I, I do acknowledge the uh, efforts to uh, sort of showcase innovations for some worker innovations uh, was something that was yeah, was uh, foregrounded at this moment and encouraged. Uh, one of the sort of critiques, I think, sort of gestures back to kind of the technocratic, uh, sort of the, the, the larger sort of technocratic system is that the, they don't, uh, so these innovations are only extolled in part because they feed towards these preset goals, uh, status goals. So um, I guess my, my intervention by the end of the book is to maybe is to, to open up uh, uh, is to sort of suggest that were we to truly um, think about more kind of bottom-up approaches, that the bottom-up approaches should be uh, those who are sort of putting these forward should be engaged in the agenda setting itself and not just proposing sort of new solutions to preset problems. Because the preset problems in the socialist period was shared concern over productivism as well. All right, so let's take some questions from the chat here. We have first Micah who had to put on her mining historian hat. Uh, always a good one. Uh, so mm. she's fascinated by the parallels between this historic idea of endless riches that you mentioned then, and this yeah. modern rhetoric around sustainable mining. Do you mm -hmm. see that there's some rhetoric of sustainable mining uh, in the areas that you study? Uh, mm -hmm. Is this a continuity of the past or is it something new that's born out of environmentalism? Thank you. For, for that, that question, Michael, I I do indeed see this, but it's it's sort of framed in a different in a different way, and I, I think it's sort of framed from and this is primarily because the areas I study uh, in China's northeast, uh, there was once the industrial heartland of you know the post revolutionary state, uh, is now its Rust Belt, and so it comes out of deindustrialization, and. If there's if it's if there's anything that is gesturing toward sustainable mining, it oftentimes come out comes out of a sentiment of it comes out of regret, and so speaking about, for instance, the high socialist period, uh, the the sort of late 1950s, early 60s, uh, the Great Leap Forward, um, the Cultural Revolution, where there was um, a big soft push to uh, to sort of extract. Uh, quite relentlessly to exceed targets and the like. And, and to do so, uh, you know, these, um, the, the folks who are running the mines uh, oftentimes uh, uh, pushed for extraction beyond, let's say, re recommended recovery versus retained ratios that, you know, would be uh, the, the, the cause of subsidence later. Uh, and, you know, the cost of actually clearing them out is, is has become so considerable that some of these, uh, for example, the, the the big open pit mine, about a third of its uh, deposits remain, uh, um, you know, of, of, of its 1.5 billion tons of coal remain, but it's it's not mined because you have to clear all this debris and you have to sort of fix all these problems that were from um, not having done it right in the earlier periods. And so it comes out of regret. And that's, and, and I mean, to me, I didn't write it about this um, in the conclusion, but I've been thinking about this a little bit more, uh, whether, you know, regret can also be, I mean, it's really terrible for the local, for that community, 
Um, and at the same time, it's still a carbon regime. I mean, we're still talking about you know coal mining, but whether it can still be you know a source, an alternative source, alongside our calls for you know indigenous knowledge and other self-sustainable practices, but whether it's another sentiment that we can mobilize for imagining a sort of a habitable future for us all. So do you see that, I mean, related to that, do you see in, in the historical documents traces of protests, of resistance, um, I mean, whether it's, it's for environmental reasons or other reasons in the local communities? Uh, definitely, this is way back from you know time that the um, sort of Japanese company first establishes itself there, because uh, Chinese land law uh, at that time in early twentieth century, uh, property law was that you know you you buy a piece of land but you own everything from as high as it goes and as low and, and the the and as and as deep into the earth, and um, the Japanese company was uh, that's when you know it still had subsurface workings, half of the, the mining here, although the open pit mine is the iconic picture uh, and uh, representation of the site, uh, a lot of the mining was also subsurface and, you know, digging below um, Chinese houses and businesses. And then the, so I, I see it in the complaints to the local magistrates when the buildings were, you know, sinking uh, into the, into the, into the excavated uh, tunnels, but it goes, you know, it, some resistance from the workers as well, you know, strikes, um, although more around sort of questions of livelihood. I mean, and, and imaginably so, the, you know, the communists were very interested uh, even before the revolution in mobilizing the population here because it was a big industrial site, uh, but they were quite unsuccessful because they, in part because the sort of Japanese policing mechanism was very, was very um, uh, I mean, it was very extensive with you know systems of moles and all that that infiltrated their their cells uh but at the same time uh my critique is that you know they were also oftentimes so abstract they were talking about like you know fighting imperialism and you know realizing socialism without as much on the ground um th this is on the part of the communist mobilizers as much uh on the ground experiences of the miners there so uh, yeah, there are sort of multiple episodes of pushback throughout the um, throughout the the book uh, as well. So we have another question then from the chat from Gerard about uh, what impact, uh, if any, did the Japanese mining engineering protocols uh, have then on the evolution of coal mine engineering in China after World War II? Uh, he points to you know the fact that the coal mine output dropped dramatically from 1939. Yeah, no, thank you, Gerald, for that. So that's that's when um, you know the the um, Second Sino-Japanese War had already broken out in 1937, and um, there was increasing difficulty in getting mining equipment from the home islands uh, that was manufactured in the home islands to uh, Manchuria, uh, and so we we witnessed like dropping efficiency per miner and, and, and even as the workforce grows and they're starting to use um, enslaved labor at that point as uh, POWs and people seized in North China uh, sort of euphemistically called special workers uh, and so mining output drops dramatically from 39 onwards where it's peak and it's and, but you see the workforce continue to grow uh, into this period but uh, in terms of engineering protocols um, this is 
largely because of the Japanese engineers who remained uh, behind, not only after the fall of the empire, uh, after you know, the Soviets seized it briefly, uh, the nationalists come over, but then even after the revolution, um, and uh, they were sort of in charge of um, managing the, the rehabilitation of many of the devastated sites of, uh, of, of uh, extraction, but also uh, training Chinese uh, technicians and engineers and um, you know, Japanese manuals and, and uh, handbooks were also translated uh, into Chinese. Uh, uh, one of the sort of interesting um, sort of tidbits I'll have here is that in 49, the, 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 the bureau that runs, the communist bureau that runs the Kaleri Suna, so after the, the takeover, they publish a book for the workers. It's a small little comic book and they say it's, you know, drawing and, and synthesizing a lot of different um, Japanese texts that they've gone through. And it goes from, you know, the posture to which you should sort of hold, uh, stand in when you sort of wield the pickaxe to explaining hydraulic storage and, and things like that. And um, the interesting thing is it, it, they cite it as a translation and then they give the original name of uh, the Japanese uh, author, which is, Actually, I mean, to me, I think it's actually a fabricated name. It's basically like John Smith and Ito uh, Kobun. The characters are just very common characters that you would find that you imagine like what a Japanese person may be called. And so this idea of just using that, you know, the idea of Japanese expertise uh, and calling upon it, even though it may have been just, you know, cobbled from this and that was, uh, was still uh, sort of striking to me. Um, and you had a question about labor unions as as well. Um, yes, so I mean, um, because this was a state-owned enterprise, uh, the the uh, and and became a state-owned enterprise soon after. Uh, sort of earlier on, uh, the um, sort of the party secretary was very much involved in in uh, efforts to sort of mobilize the masses. And I think uh, here the I mean, if, if anything, it, it sort of gestured more to the kind of cleaving closer to the, uh, so, you know, once a directive is given, the sort of jumping faster to, to, toward its direction more than anything else. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think I'll, that those will be my comments on that for now. But thank you for your question too, Gerald. So I was wondering, you, you mentioned the, the local community, right? When, when they would drill or make their, their tunnels underneath, you yeah. know, you could have subsidence, obviously. So you have local uh, effects and you have that people are working there and they may be, you know, sick or, or die in these accidents. But yeah. I was wondering about other kinds of effects on the community, on moving mm -hmm. from, if you will, not being a coal mine uh, to being yeah. a, a coal mining area and yeah. and what the social impacts um in that area and if yeah did it tie them somehow closer to cosmopolitan centers for example mm -hmm. where people all of a sudden started buying the the fancy clothes or something instead of the rural things or yeah. you know how how does this energy regime then affect those people, yeah, no, that are not just for, workers. <laughs> yeah, um, so maybe two things I'll say about this. The first is how you know this community really grows. So it, I mean, I call it mining town, but really now it's like two point two million people, 
which is funny because I mean, I'm from Singapore, which is you know a small island country, and I'll go there. And I mean, the folks would ask me like, why have you come for all this way from you know either Singapore or the US to study our little town? I'm like, you know, actually, you know, 2.2 million, nothing to sneeze at. But uh, even back then, it was you know a, a source for for migrant labor, and um, Manchuria was uh, the largest uh, site for Chinese migration, or I mean, even if we count internal migration in, from the late 19th. Uh, through the first half of the 20th century, which was striking to me because as, as you know, Chinese Singaporean, I thought that Southeast Asia was really the catchment area for all this migration during that same period. But the number of people moving to the Northeast was uh, even larger, uh, very, very striking. And so the town itself actually became a town uh, and grew and, uh, and uh, but, you know, it was also one in which it was very sort of divided by uh, the the Japanese had us had, had special quarters uh, and the, the the sort of best parts of the you know oftentimes in, in many of these like colonial settings you'll see this in like French Indochina as well like you know building houses on the hill instead and the hill is where you have the, um, the very exclusive uh, colliery club which is now a three star hotel called the you know, the Coal Capital Hotel which still stands um, but yeah so that is one. Thing I would say, but in terms of uh, specific to energy, also uh, an interesting thing is that, uh, and this is related to, I mean, both the ideal of suppressing prices for coal or to keep coal prices low, and this, I mean, something that we in the US are also sort of very committed to, you know, cheap energy, uh, but this ideal of cheap energy. So, but because uh, of its importance to industry, the you know company was also trying to sort of control the prices to some extent. But this was also tied to the large um, agricultural change in the region under uh, the South Manchuria, so under the South Manchuria Way Company, which was very invested in, as, as you probably know, growing soybeans and and uh, which was the largest uh, producer and for, for nitrogen also you know, soybean cakes, the nitrogen fixing uh, by you know by the 1930s, the largest exporter in the world. Uh, but this meant turning uh, a lot of fields that had previously been uh, growing sorghum uh, to the cultivation of uh, of soy uh, of, of the soybean and um, and soy uh, sorghum stocks used to be a, a, a household fuel uh, one of the most commonly used household fuels but now the population the rural population also burn coal because it's cheaper and then you have less sorghum stocks to begin with so it, oh, this is at least one way in which you know, the everyday fuel consumption was sort of shaped by uh, these larger sort of economic moves also in the region. So just related to that and Gabriella's question about uh, do local non-miners mine coal for themselves, which is something you'll see happens in, in Pennsylvania? Yeah, although, um, I mean, this is, it's less about mining is maybe like, you know, picking up, uh, picking up uh, soft scraps of uh, mined material on the site. But this is where, you know, some of the, to me, really kind of heartbreaking and also horrifying and also enraging uh, police cases I see is like, you know, when uh, the Japanese constable like chases a Chinese boy into the Chinese quarters for like pil pilfering coal and then beating him into a pulp and realizing that, you know, this and looking at, I mean, at that, you know, some of these, the, the, at least the, the case that comes to mind, you know, the kid is 
not much older than my own son, who's five, and just how terrible and horrifying it is. But yeah, you know, locals also, I mean, that was one way in which they sort of on, on the fringe of this larger self-industrial uh, apparatus uh, would, would engage the sort of, you know, the coal um, industry. So also just to continue the conversation then on the, you know, the growth of this, this massive city or settlement in this area mm-hmm. at the same time as the mine itself grows. So how, how, how is the relationship then physically between the mine and the city? Do you have processes of, I mean, systematic relocation? Do you move the city? I mean, again, comparing Northern Sweden, where you see that happens several places where you basically move the whole city just to get to, to the area for mining. Yeah, definitely. This and, and with the expansion of open pit mining, that's why they brought in the uh, the folks from the Mesebi Iron Range. In particular, the guy who was involved. So there's a guy, LD Devonport, who was involved in the movement of Hibbing, Minnesota, which I guess is where Bob Dylan is from. But uh, he was involved in, in that move for for you know extraction of iron. But the um, the open pit mine had been abutting abutting the new town uh, that they had built. And so they basically had to uh, relocate this, this area uh, and for the expansion of the, of the mine. And so def- we definitely see that with, especially with the open pit, um, the growth of the open pit as well. I mean, yeah, that's, it, it's interesting to think about that relationship then, right? In space, in, in geography, mm-hmm. as well as in environment. Did so I was wondering about, you know, did the mining company or organization, I guess it's a governmental yeah. organization, then um, provide things in this, this city? I mean, uh, you know, parks or schools or, you know, did they actually direct, if you will, the growth of it or was it more kind of free in terms of the the structure yeah. uh, was one of the things I was thinking about. And the other was about yeah. then this museum that's there yeah. now that you closed on your, your closing things and what the narrative is that this museum tells. Um, mm-hmm. I was curious a bit more about that and how this history then is related and who, who are they relating it to? Yeah, no, thank you for this. So the, the first question about the kind of growth of the city, there definitely were sort of plans um, sort of, you know, with, uh, within the railway. So these are sort of towns within the railway zone itself where the South Metro Railway Company had uh, some, uh, I mean, was basically the, the, the government well in competition within these concessionary spaces with the actual local governments there. And, but they you know, built schools, built parks, uh, built um, uh, sort of set up areas for uh, recreation uh, at, you know, set up facilities for Japanese employees to learn Chinese. This was one of the self-interest, uh, one, one of the things that I thought was really kind of um, interesting also ways in which the sort of Japanese population both were separated from, but also kind of encouraged to somehow be able to uh, connect to the, the local community. I mean, granted that a lot of it is about, you know, being able to speak to your own workers uh, or the people you supervise. So what the sources I like to talk about is, is this, um, this uh, set of manuals that was published uh, in 1935. And they were, it's basically text, language textbooks, but they all scripted conversations between 
uh, a Japanese supervisor and a Chinese worker from, you know, recruitment. And so you'll be like, you know, but so much scripted admonition and suspicion and, you know, basically teaching you how to scold another person. And so, you know, why are you lying about your age? It's like you have all these spots on you. Are you using morphine? Are you like, you know, do you use opium? And then, you know, they have all the Chinese phrases above with like transliterations as how to voice it uh, on top and then Japanese below. Uh, but it you know spans from recruitment to operations at the open pit, so it allowed me to really kind of get to some of the social history aspect of it, uh, and to also imagine the whole process of you know what recruitment looks like and the the medical examination uh, for individual workers and such. Um, but onto your second question about the museum, it's really interesting because this is this is not I mean it's, it's very common in China uh, to have uh, industrial museums centered on the one industry that sort of made the city. So like another place I've studied uh, that I was, you know, where um, about, I think 50 to, well, it has varied over the years, but, you know, 50 to 70% of the world's buttons are made. It's this corner in Wenzhou uh, and, you know, button capital of the world. And so there'll be a button museum there. So similarly, you know, they, they have a, a coal mining Museum here that was set up by the by the now the state-owned enterprise uh, that runs uh, that runs the mines, but the narrative is really about you know pre-communist revolution exploitation and uh, and so first from like feudalism to imperialism to like nationalist fascism you know, under the the, the 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 Chinese nationalist regime, which only held it for a very brief period of time, and then you know, increasingly how things were so much better after the revolution. Um, but, and, and this is a common, you know, way of presenting some museum stories in, 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 in South China today. But it was striking that this museum itself sits upon the site where Mao had visited in 58. Uh, so it's on the edge of the open pit mine. And um, I mean, to me, I, and I mentioned this in the, in the epilogue, that what's perhaps more striking than the story that's trying to tell, which is somewhat predictable, is this observation tower they have right at the back of the facility that's meant to look down into the mine and you're supposed to really sort of marvel at how um, this kind of technological sublime, I guess, marvel at the technological sublime. And, um, you know, it's looking and then there's a statue of Mao in front and like sort of looking towards Beijing and looking towards the future. And then, but I mean, to me, it's almost symbolic that the mine is behind and that's, and so a, a lot of it is, it seems to sort of merge that general sense of local pride and pride in local industry with this, uh, with, uh, so it's, it, so with, you know, this claim to having contributed both to the construction of the locale, but also to the, the nation. And this is where I think it, it d diverges a little bit from, you know, the, the coal mining museums that I've visited in, in the UK, um, which is, which tend to have been raised post, you know, shutting down of the facilities. Uh, there's less nostalgia in here, although I, I feel, I mean, you know, I, I feel that that is, that is soon coming. Um, yeah, I mean, this button museum you talk about is now totally on my list of places we need to, to visit. Uh, but but I think the, that this this point then that you're exploring about the way we tell these stories of of these places then in 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 museums and heritage it it relates nicely to Gerard's question here about how China contextualizes the legacy of this area today in relation to the future of the nation. 
Yeah, um, no, thank you for that. In, in, in relation to these questions of exporting large scale uh, technology projects, uh, and including, you've mentioned railways and harbors, but also coal fired power plants. Uh, but this is where it's been so, um, I mean, the, the changes over the past couple of years have, I mean, one has to like follow it closely, and I, I'm trying to, uh, but it, it sort of, flips on a couple of occasions, right? Because first it's like, you know, we are going to scale back on domestic um, coal use. And this is after the apocalypse of the early uh, teens in, in this century. And then um, towards the end of, you know, around 2017 or so, uh, as a, you, you start seeing uh, um, sort of coal being um, burned more extensively again with, against fears of a slowing down economy. Uh, but then there's a then there's reaches a point where it's like okay, but we'll sort of try to sort of keep things and sort of work towards you know and and with recent years work towards um, carbon neutral um, uh, goals. But then at the same pronouncement of it with the Belt and Road Initiative, then you know there's the exporting of these technologies. So it's like okay, it becomes a, almost like a NIMBY. Uh, thing, but with, with in the context of China, but then recently again, just I think last month there was the the claim that there'll be there will be a um, I mean they won't be funding at least the the coal fired projects further uh, or, or building new ones beyond the existing uh, commitments uh, along the Belt and Road Initiative. So it seems to be able to turn on its head very quickly, uh, which. Uh, which I mean, also with you know the this this past winter, there's been a coal shortage in China and an energy shortage, um, and that uh, that's also causing folks to sort of rethink some of these commitments. Also, so you mentioned right before we we started officially this thing that you had done, uh, you know, archive visits and research in China uh, for your next project. Could you just tell us a little bit now, the end about your your next project and and the relation where you know to this book? Yeah, no, thank you for that. So, I mean, I, I sometimes say that like you know I am a historian of energy and work, and so if this book is about energy, uh, the next book is about work. And I mean, I had arrived at the at the coal mining project in large part because of my interest in labor history, uh, but then sort of fell into sort of got really interested in the stuff that was being mined itself and the materiality of it, and sort of went off into thinking about larger energy systems. And then sort of by the end of the narrative, returning also to the place of of um, sort of human labor in all of this. And um, the next project uh, builds then in part on my interest in sort of work and labor by looking at you know how work became an object of scientific inquiry, and uh, and how larger discourses of uh, labor and work have intersected with the sciences of work itself and been shaped by it. And and, and so I look at this uh, through the history of industrial psychology in China, which uh, is is taken up in the 1930s. Uh, it becomes transformed as as into labor psychology in the in the socialist period, uh, uh, in part because industrial psychology itself had been framed as this kind of tool of the capitalist class for the exploitation of workers, uh, as it has been in this country too, uh, in the U.S. Um, and then I take it all the way through uh, the you know the reform and opening up period where 
it becomes uh, uh, when um, psychology, which had been um, sort of taken down in the midst of the Cultural Revolution, had been sort of revived and the industrial psychologists who are now like their counterparts here, you know, embracing industrial and organizational psychology uh, uh, start, you know, contributing to the, the new kind of socialist economy with cap, uh, with Chinese characteristics of this new capitalist economy. They're starting to go into the business schools, for instance, uh, and the like. And so that's kind of the trajectory I, I trace with, with this particular project on the sciences of work. All right. Well, we're at our time. Um, so I just want to thank um, Victor Xiao, who's assistant professor of the history of science at Harvard University for coming and talking with us today about his book, Carbon Technocracy, Energy Regimes in Modern East Asia, which was published with the University of Chicago Press. So thank you, Victor. Thank you so much, Dolly. Thank you so much, Finarn. This has been a, a, a pleasure. And thanks everyone for, for coming. Uh, I, yeah, I hope you, if you read the book, please reach out to me and we can have more conversations. I, uh, I really sort of appreciate this, this, this venue and the, the chat that we've just had. So thank you.